Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti. Well, I'm delighted to interview Frances Fitzgerald, MEP, for the podcast this week. Frances is former Thánaiste and Minister for Justice and Equality, among other ministries. And she's been a tireless worker on behalf of women and children since her early days as a social worker, as well as her involvement leading up the National Women's Council of Ireland, even before she went into politics. In the podcast, Frances talks about what we need to do to ensure hard-won gains for women last and to make them mainstream in society, politics and business. So you have to have sustained awareness, first of all, positive action, mentoring and support for the women who are in there, and the systems examining themselves critically. Frances, through her time working with women's groups, has seen over the years how women's voices are often talked over and silenced or their ideas appropriated by men. In a recent leadership masterclass with young women, she was surprised to hear them identify the problem still exists, even at senior academic and business levels. And they were saying to me how they felt that their voices, even in their own disciplines where they were top level, uh, because they were only maybe one out of you know their particular uh, department or one out of their particular management sector, they felt that you know their ideas were even being taken and being expressed by men. And the old story, when they were expressed by the men, they got more take up. Frances Fitzgerald maintains that the COVID-19 crisis, as awful as it is, gives us an opportunity to rebuild the EU economy with a renewed focus on green, digital and social issues. And in Ireland, with so many of the large digital companies based here, she believes we're ideally suited to growth through digital, but that we have to bring everyone with us. Uh, We have a very good education system. And we've just got to make sure that we're as digitally as smart as any place in the world. We should be leaders and we can be. I began by asking Frances how things were going for her since she moved to working at a European level. Yeah, well, we're very, very busy. I mean, believe it or not, I'm nearly as busy like the European Parliament is so busy and we're doing it all on Zoom and web and, uh, you know, um, Microsoft Teams, everything uh, at the moment and Skype. And uh, like all the committees, like my economic committee is meeting endlessly. And then my um, my fan committee and my, you know, you, you have three layers. You have the parliament itself where we're voting. And we have three days, I think it's next week. And then you have your party, which also has its own series of meetings. And then you have your committee. So it's kind of three layered. And depending on the week you're in, there's a focus on that particular issue, you know. You've always been a great champion of hearing and amplifying women's voices. Do you think we women are getting any better at speaking up and taking our place at the decision-making tables? Now, you're seeing it a lot in Europe where there's much more engagement from women. But do you think Irish women are getting any better at speaking up and taking their place at the decision-making table? What I would say, you know, observing it over the period I've been involved over 20 years, I would say that there is ongoing progress. Women's voices are coming you know, from all sorts of places on lots of different issues. Um, there's still a major, major gap when it comes to women and decision-making and actually reaching the levels of decision-making. So there's more speaking up, but I'm still struck by how many more male voices we still hear, whether it's about COVID-19 or whether it's about, um, you know, on the media generally. And if you look at the sports pages of the newspapers, I mean, there's still glaring omissions around women. And not to speak of politics, where you have nearly 80% representation of men in the Dáil. The Senate is a little bit better. The European Parliament is 40%. But there is still an enormous gap 
Uh, you look at our boards, there is enormous gap. It's over 70% male. So, you know, clearly there's a very long way to go. And it's a power issue as well. And it's a question of everyday sexism that we have to address all the time. But clearly women have more rights. Women are better educated. Women have made great impact on dealing with issues around sexual violence, but we still see increases. So, you know, we live in a, a society that is not balanced in terms of the rights of women and men, and there is a long journey ahead of us. So the more Irish women that speak out, uh, the better. And I think we still have an issue about critical voice and critical mass. By critical voice, I mean 40 to 50%, 50% of the voices we hear should be women. When you say critical voice, are you talking about in the media or in politics or both? I'm talking everywhere. I think it's right across. It's across business. Uh, we only have 30% of female entrepreneurs. Uh, as I said, politics still has a lack of, a crit uh, of that critical mass. By critical mass, I mean at least 40% of women in the positions of authority. And when you look at, you know, cabinet, when you look at the, as you get into the higher excellence of decision making, it's still very low and it makes a difference. It's, it's a gap. And it's, it's an imbalance in society. And even in medicine, we're seeing really fascinating books coming out about how we're not doing enough research into women's bodies and women's illnesses. And we're assuming if we do research on men, that it's the same as for women. It's not. It's totally different. So this bias in IT and AI, artificial intelligence, you know, um, how come it's always females we're telling to do things like Alexa? Yeah, I amazing. love quoting that. <laughs> Uh, just coming back to the science, I think um, uh, Eileen Drew, uh, Professor Eileen Drew in Trinity was telling me once that um, they've had to change a, a lot of this because of EU funding for research. Uh, but even the mice that they were using for testing drugs and treatments, they were all male mice that they were using. <laughs> like it's Isn't it's down to that level of detail. Yeah. yeah. And the same even with the, the, the crash test dummies. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I uh, was fascinated. But you, you mentioned there a power issue. What did you mean by that? Is it that uh, people with power don't like relinquishing it, whether that's uh, male or white or middle-aged? You know, is, what do you mean by the power well, issue? Well, it's, it's, it's a journey. It's a journey about sharing how we organize society. I happen to believe that the best way to make decisions about our society is having women and men working together and also having diversity, diverse voices. Yeah. I think we get better decisions and we bring a wider range of experience to the table. I mean, it's very obvious if you're in a room with 100% men or 100% women or 50-50 or 70-30, there's different dynamics at play. Even recently, I did a masterclass on leadership with a group of quite you know, young women. And they were saying to me how they felt that their voices, even in their own disciplines where they were top level, uh, because they were only maybe one out of you know, their particular... A department or one out of their particular management sector, they felt that, you know, their ideas were even being taken and being expressed by men. And the old story, when they were expressed by the men, they got more take up. Now, management is much more aware of this. But, you know, it's a journey. It's an everyday journey that... Um, so I don't think we make any apologies for continuing to work on it. Sometimes I sort of say, gosh, is it not... Why are we still talking about domestic violence? But of course we are, because... Actually, with the drugs issues, with pornography, um, with alcohol issues, um, you're seeing, I mean, domestic violence, as we know, is about power. It's about power of one person over another person and using violence to express that. So, you know, all of these factors put together 
um, make one determined to continue uh, to deal with the current imbalances. And what I mean by power is dealing with those imbalances so that in every area you are seeing it as natural and normal to have the diversity of society, i.e. 50% of women represented. I think at the conference in um, October last year, you also talked about sustaining it. Like when women do reach almost 50, 50%, or as it was in the judicial system there a while ago, we had, you know, the heads of each like chief state solicitor and DPP and uh, like they were all women, but that didn't last. And it's, it's a picture you see frequently that women make it so far, but that sustaining that exhausting uh, are, well, you know, yes. are there systemic things that we could do to you know to make this systemically sustaining well, it's a very interesting point uh, you had to say six people at the top of the justice agencies being replaced by six men now of course that's going to happen that you're going to have a mix but the point i was making and i would continue to make is just because we've had two female presidents or we've had six people at the head of the judiciary when is the next time we're going to see the next um, group of you know six women uh, leading the judiciary and you know the legal services and so on and the ministries and of course it's 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 vulnerable is the point I was making and the only way you can deal with it is by for example in the political parties we now have the 30% of women have to run but of course we still only have 22% in the door so you have to have sustained awareness first of all positive action mentoring and support for the women who are in there and the systems examining themselves critically. So, for example, we're looking at statues now in the public arena. How many statues of women, uh, of any women, are around the place? And this is like the initiative that Women on Walls, that Accenture and the Royal Irish Academy took, a fantastic initiative, because, you know, what does it say to young women when everywhere they walk, they look up the walls in their institutions and they only see the men who proceed to them. They don't see the female models. So it is a wonderful work has been done rediscovering women in history, in the arts, in literature. And it's, it's about continually doing that. And of course, you can't let people dismiss you because you're saying it like, oh, we've talked about this before. Yes, and we're going to go on talking about it until uh, we have um, an equality situation, which we don't yet have. Um, one of the things I think you said recently, uh, this crisis gives us an opportunity to rebuild. I mean, there's that phrase, you know, don't waste a good crisis. But you said that it's an opportunity to rebuild the EU economy, well, I presume Irish economy and society as well, with a renewed focus. And you mentioned green, digital and social issues. And I think these are actually key to turning things around, aren't they? Because with um, so, so many people working from home now, it's, the shift has been hugely into the domestic area. But just maybe talk us a little bit through what you meant there, the crisis gives an yes. opportunity to, to rebuild the EU economy. Well, people have always said you have to wait. Women have to wait. Children have to wait. Um, it's too difficult to change it all now. Well, my goodness, when you see this crisis <laughs> and you see how suddenly we've started working from home. Now, that's not without its difficulties, which I will speak about. But uh, let me say that the recovery has to be a recovery that takes into account green and digital because that's the future. And the point about the economy as well is that the European economy, as well as the Irish, is losing billions of pounds, GDP, uh, euros, uh, I should say, <laughs> when um, women are, are not getting opportunities in the economy. And Christine Lagarde has done really interesting work when she was in the IMF 
highlighting the percentage of GDP when women aren't involved. And for example, if you put one extra woman on a board without increasing the numbers on the board, you get an 8% gain in productivity in that board in that company. So it's very interesting that, you know, what has been lost to the economy and the point as well about the crisis is that what we are seeing now is how much of women's work is in the caring professions, often undervalued uh, professions, over 80% across Europe, in childcare, in elder care, 82% uh, of cashiers in supermarkets, all these high risk jobs when it comes to COVID. And suddenly I think, you know, the cleaning, the nursing, the caring, we're going to have to look at how we value these jobs, largely done by women. And the value we put on them is so much less. And yet in the crisis, we've seen how absolutely essential and invaluable they are. So I hope we don't go back, you know, to the old ways of silence, not recognizing this work. And when even when we recognize it, it's so poorly paid. So I think the economy definitely has to be green. Companies have to be green. Um, we have to, and Ursula van der Leyen, the president of the commission says this all the time, we will not put money into projects that are not green and digital in this recovery. So it's the Green Deal, the new Green Deal is very much part of that, climate neutrality, and making our transport systems, our health systems and everything responsive to the current situation. When it comes to green issues and the environment, the pandemic, it's really made us all stop and think, hasn't it? Like we're hearing, people are talking about hearing birds singing in a way they didn't hear it before. Um, you know, you go out for a walk, you see families out walking and cycling. That would have taken years, as you said earlier. Like things have sped up so fast that they, you know, that we always prioritized cars, but now we're going to have to prioritize people walking and cycling. Um, can we learn from other EU states what's working with them? I think you have some wonderful examples um, around Europe. Um, you know, it depends what city you take, but they say Copenhagen um, is the best city in the world to live in. It's very to live in. It's very um, green. There's a lot of uh, public space, a lot of parks, a lot of cycling, a lot of areas where cars don't go. I think that's a really good model. I think we've seen some very interesting housing models coming from Vienna where again, you have that kind of public space, even if people are living in apartments, that the whole area is built in such a way as to be conducive to walking and cycling. So I think um, it's going to be very interesting to see the program for government and to see you know, how, where we're going to put our money in the years ahead. Um, I, I, when I speak to women at the moment, they tell me they like a lot of what's happened. They like having more time with their children if they have children. They like more family time. They like more time for their hobbies. They like being at home. But what they are all saying to me as well is that the work demands have not gone down. And this is true for men mm. as well. That, you know, combining work and family life uh, and working from home is not the easiest place to be. And I think we need to be very careful that we don't think that working from home is an excuse for not having childcare. If you're working at home when you're very young children, you still need childcare supports, make no mistake about it. I mean, I've seen a lot of young couples where both are working with very young children. It's quite stressful on them and it isn't all that easy. So I think the messages coming across from couples are, yes, it's about the pressure of work and how do we get balances? It's what the feminist movement has always spoken about, you know, about work-life balance, about valuing homework and care work, 
and trying to get more of a, ba a balance into our modern capitalist system. That's what it boils down to. I think it's interesting that you talk about, you know, not an excuse for not having childcare. I know so many young women and they're just dying to get back to the workplace so they can get a break as well because they're, you know, the juggling has gone into overdrive because they're trying to do everything at the same time. And you just can't do that when you have a young family. Um, uh, although um, just to say, I did see a very um, interesting headline. I think it was in the Times a few weeks ago from a young man. He said, I didn't know I was an absent father until eight weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> so this Probably a lot of learning for men, yeah. and I think a lot of men have thoroughly enjoyed more time with their children, and I think the children have loved it. But then, of course, there are also children from whom being at home is extraordinarily stressful. They're not getting the supports that they need, um, particularly special needs uh, children, but all children. So, you know, it is interesting that childcare was seen as dispensable during the crisis, that we didn't manage to find a model uh, to, to have it available. It is interesting that school was one of the first places closed even though the evidence around children is um, pretty strong that they, they don't uh, pass on the, the illness. So like, there are very interesting reflections for us all to make post the crisis. Yeah, we've a lot of learning to do, haven't we? Um, you talked there about the crisis. Um, do you think there's any appetite for going back to austerity? I don't think there is. Um, do you think that there's a willingness in Europe to spread the burden of the, you know, the coronavirus in a way that wasn't there during the financial crisis? Oh, there's, there's no doubt. But one of the reasons is because every country uh, is affected. Mm. So it's in everybody's interest and in the interest of the bigger and smaller economies. Uh, Europe has been extraordinary in terms of its response, very, close, very slow to start with Italy. But that was because they didn't have any stores, they didn't have access to PPP, the supply chains were dependent on India and China and they broke down. But since then, they have done in two weeks uh, what took them two years before in terms of financial supports. Now, the final package is still to be agreed. There will be some discussion, but it is enormous amounts of money that Europe has made available through grants, loans, cheaper loans, investment from the European Investment Bank and bond buying from the European Central Bank. This is unprecedented. And I think in time we will see that, that we have a lot to be grateful to Europe for. Of course, we pay in the longer term. Ireland will be a contributor uh, to the EU budget going forward. Uh, but we got huge support in the 80s and 90s. And now it's our turn to help those countries who aren't coping as well as we hope to be in the next few weeks and months and years. I suppose it's something we should be proud of that we've, you know, we've come this far and that we should be happy to be able to contribute, even though not everybody's happy to do it. Can I just move on to something else? You, 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 when you say we can refocus on digital issues, what did you mean by that? Well, look, it's quite clear, as you said, you know, we've adapted so quickly, you know, um, uh, my parliament is in Brussels. And yet I'm constantly on uh, technology. Um, we've all had to adapt. It's fascinating how every age group has adapted to technology. Mm. Uh, people were quite stressed at the beginning, getting used to the new systems. Um, people who never used um, internet or iPads or anything at all um, are really, you know, we're seeing that. And, and what I'm saying is that government um, has to make it easy uh, to teach certainly the current generation who are very sharp around it anyway, uh, but all generations, you know, in, in terms of making iPads available in schools, in terms of technology, it is the future. And, you know, people will be left behind. Um, businesses that don't go online, we, we had quite a low rate of Irish businesses going online. To be honest with you, it's survival now. If they're not online, 
they're probably not going to sell to any degree. And whether that's a food product or a clothes product or whatever it is, furniture. Um, with Brexit, we were going to have to diversify our markets anyway. But certainly with COVID, we are going to have to get very sharp online uh, digitally if we are to survive in the world. And we have some big companies here. Uh, we have a very good education system. Um, we've just got to make sure that we're as digitally as smart as any place in the world. We should be leaders and we can be. I think we can. I mean, I, I teach myself, I think I was telling you, but one of the, the things that struck home with me as a teacher in further education uh, when, in March, and we had to start teaching our students remotely, was just how difficult life is for some students. Uh, some had to share a laptop with their parents and with their siblings, like everybody was trying to do homework at the same time. Some people had no space, like physical space themselves, and a lot of them had poor broadband. Uh, and others had to get you know, stuck into working. Some of them just disengaged completely. Yes, you see, um, what you're saying is bringing up the differential impact yeah. of the crisis on people, and it shows up inequalities. And there are brilliant examples you've given about just how serious it is. And this assumption, you cannot assume that the impact on everybody is the same. There's very differential impact on people in this crisis, hugely differential. And it shows really we have to work towards an equal society. You know, it's, if, if there's disadvantage in one part of Ireland or one part of a city, it affects everybody. And it's in all our interests to create a more equal society. I just wanted to come back to something that we talked on a little bit earlier, and that's the working from home thing. And I know from a lot of women that, you know, who asked for working from home and there was a huge resistance from their employers. But now it's been shown that not only is it possible, it's actually to the employer's advantage sometimes, particularly at the moment, to have people working from home. And that the research is showing that people are more productive because they're not spending all that time commuting. The time they would have been commuting, they can now actually work. But uh, as the saying goes, you know, be careful what you wish for. You know, like some women are just finding it life so hard. Um, you know, how do you think we can bring social change about when it comes to the division of labour in the home as well? Because, you know, we mentioned a little bit earlier that the dads like uh, being at home and didn't realise they were absent fathers. But there can sometimes be times when they might like playing with the kids or being there. But, you know, sharing the domestic duties is sometimes a bit of a push. What can we do to, you know, to bring this home to couples that it's, it's 50, 50. I, I, I don't want, I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be flippant about this, but you know, it's like anything, the more you practice, the better you get. So I think women have to let men practice more uh, those men who are willing to do it. Uh, but I think you're up against uh, still, believe it or not. I think younger men are definitely changing many of them. But, you know, you're up against background, you're up against rearing. I mean, the research from all over the world, it's incredible. Um, it just shows that women do far more housework. And even during this uh, crisis and the lockdown, you still find that women are doing more. Now, I, I, I think there's a little bit of, as I say, practice. There's a little bit of tradition. Um, you know, genuinely, I, it's a very odd thing for me to say. But because women do it so much more, they often think, well, I'm better and quicker at this than anybody else. I'll do it. And, you know, women have to hold back a little bit and men have to be encouraged uh, and should be doing it, not just encouraged. That sounds like, you know, it's something that they, they sort of, it's arbitrary. You know, this is life. Mm -hmm. You know, managing a house is life. And mm -hmm. I, I think it goes back to the devaluing of any, you know, the devaluing of the inner world, the inside world, and the overvaluing of the outside world. And I mean, 
Women have talked about this for decades. And I think we're getting a real insight into it now. And I hope some good will come out of it in terms of sharing. And also for employers, you know, um, that yes, they can certainly, this idea that you have to be under, it's a very hierarchical concept, a patriarchal concept, but you have to be under the eye of somebody to do your work and that you're not self-motivated to put in a, a good day's work. And like, I have to say the vast majority, almost everybody I know, I mean, my, my staff are working from home in, in, in different places, in, in Brussels and Dublin. And I, you know, with the technology, I mean, I know what they're doing. They tell me. In some ways, I think you're nearly sharper around priorities and getting to the cutting edge um, is yep. my experience. Because you do. But then people miss the social side, of course, of work. And, you know, the getting out. We're, we're social animals. animals. No, man, you know, no man is an island, you know. So true. And, uh, we need that as well. So it's all about balance. Yeah. Well, just before we finish off, a few standard questions that I always ask people on, on the podcast. And the first one is your pearls of wisdom. Um, what are your top five pearls of wisdom? What advice would you give to people, particularly women, when it comes to leadership ambitions? Is it important to be ambitious in the first place? It's not a bad word. It's not a bad word, but I, I'm not sure it necessarily reflects the reality. I mm. think sometimes, you know, opportunities come to people. Um, I would say enjoy what you're doing. I, I would say, um, you know, do what you want to do uh, in terms of your interest. I would say be clear about your values. Follow your values. I would say in politics, which at times has been extraordinarily difficult for me, um, what has sustained me is the sense that I believed, like from my social work 20 years in England uh, and Dublin, my values about equality, my values about women and men um, my values about how the social order I mean, these are needed to change my values around children I mean these are the things that have sustained me and kept me going so I think you've got to hold on to your values and you will come across difficult issues but I think if you're clear about your values it will sustain you I would say to women find a place where you can think well uh, and we were talking a lot about the rush of everyday life and of course the issue is that it can be very difficult to find a place where you can think well. And I always say that if you can find some place, someone, some person, um, leadership support is very important because there are a lot of challenges in the everyday work environment. So what you want is somebody, some place where you can think well about, answer the question at each stage, what do I really want to do now? And if you're unhappy, you know, explore it. Look at the conflicts. See if you can change them. Um, the other thing is uh, find support to speak out. Um, it's not always easy because you can often be, as I said about those women earlier, mm. you can be a lone voice. Get allies, you know, mentoring. Um, I mean, lots of men make really good uh, mentors because they've been through, um, mm. you know, X, Y, or Z in careers. Uh, talk to other women who've been in the job you've been in. You know, don't be afraid to ask. It's terribly important. So there are pretty basic things, really, Angie, about, about how to run your life, you know. And uh, I guess you've really got to, uh, I think we're all so serious. You know, people always think I'm a very serious person. But actually, you know, find enjoyment and fun in life and, you know, have your friends and make sure you have those balances because, you know, it's, it's not all work. But, you know, most of the women I know do take their work incredibly seriously. Mm. But you've got to balance it and be happy and, and, and do what, you know, you know, follow up those things that you really enjoy as well. They as well as your 
They were fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, music. Do you like music? Do you have a, a go-to song or a piece of music that you use kind of to either motivate yourself or help you to relax? You know, what's, what's your musical choice like? Well, I, 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 I'm always sort of thinking I should be or, more organized about my musical choices. <laughs> so I can, so just like you say, I could sort of just, you know, press the old phone and go in. And, and I do have, a, obviously, playlists that I really enjoy. I have very wide taste in music. You know, I love ballet. I love Swan Lake. Um, I, I love the Sleeping Beauty uh, music. I love going to see ballet. I don't know when that will happen again. Um, but I love contemporary music. But I also, I'm a big Leonard Cohen fan. I have been since I was about 14 years and years ago. Um, I love, um, you know, Edith Piaf, Je ne regret rien. Mm. Um, you know, I, I just think there's so many. You know, uh, Tina Turner, I Will Survive. That's a great song. Uh, there's some brilliant uh, <laughs> feminist songs out there, you know, and by God. Uh, she had to do a lot to survive. And uh, I, I, I just think that music is, yes, it's super. And uh, I, I, I love listening to music and, and very eclectic taste. I go back to the, I guess, the 80s a lot. I mean, I, I, love, uh, I love songs like American Pie, you know, and mm. uh, lots of these older ones, Sitting in the Dark of the Bay, uh, you know, Otis, I, lots of these ones I get great enjoyment from. I love David Bowie, for example. So sad he's not with us anymore. Yeah. Brilliant. Best money advice you ever got? This could be something philosophical about it, maybe always saving something or financial planning. Or somebody else said to me yesterday, just taking ownership of your own financial management. She said a lot of women just kind of, you know, out of habit or upbringing, just deferred the, the man to, to manage all the money. What was the best bit of money advice you ever got? You know, I'm not sure I ever took it, and that's the truth. Um, but I think it's really, uh, you know, it is an area that women, I guess for all sorts of kind of historical reasons as well, they weren't managing their own money. Um, I think, you know, get advice and uh, just have a look at the issues, and particularly to women, I would say, in their, you know, in their 20s when they start the career. Um, it's really important to sort of think longer term. And, you know, put some money uh, in, 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 into a pension. That's really important, I think. And just get a sense of managing it. I mean, I, I, I think you're right. It's just that basic just ownership issue around it. And, um, I, yeah, I think women are getting better at it. Fantastic. Francis, is there anything else you'd like to add or anything that you think is really important to, to talk about at the moment before we finish up? Well, look, I think we should support one another. I think women uh, need to support uh, one another. Never underestimate what a bit of positive input does for a woman. Um, they say that in order to think well, you need a ratio of eight to one of positivity to negative uh, comments, uh, negative behavior. And if you reflect on your life, it's important to think about, are you getting that balance of positivity? Um, it's it, criticism particularly in the world of politics, you know, it's full of criticism, full of adversarial comment, very negative. I actually think it's quite hard to think well in politics. And it's also true for other areas. So I think that ratio of appreciation uh, to criticism, it, try and find that in your life. It's, it's terribly important because it frees up your mind to think. And women have wonderful minds. True, including your own. Frances Fitzgerald, MEP, thank you so much for being a guest on the Women in Leadership podcast. Thank you so much. My thanks to Frances Fitzgerald, MEP, our guest on the Women in Leadership podcast, leaving us with some great advice to get that eight to one positive support to free up your mind and think about how important it is for women to support other women. 
That's all for this podcast. If you've any comment or want to add your own positive comment, you can follow us on Twitter at Leading Women Pod or email us on the show at info at womeninleadership.ie. We have a newsletter too, and that comes out about once a month with additional content. And you can sign up for that on the website www.womeninleadership.ie and the Women in Leadership is all one word. My thanks to the Women in Leadership production team and to our researcher Maria Gillette. Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti, goodbye and take care. Mm-hmm.